True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, among others. They'll do all of that so you can do literally anything else. You have better things to do with your free time than focus on your lawn care. Let True Green take care of all the hard work it takes to get a great lawn while you take care of everything else on your to-do list. You can trust True Green to give you the best lawn because they are the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. They offer a satisfaction guarantee and they have a verified best price promise which gives you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. Think about how hard it is to manage our fantasy baseball teams. You need all the time you can get to put in waiver wire claims, fab bids, send out trades, and set your lineups. You'll have that extra time when True Green is taking care of your lawn. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Welcome to the Fantasy Baseball Today podcast from CBS Sports. One, one pitch. Basketball pulled and Got a fantasy question? Email fantasybaseball at cbsi.com. Get ready to win your league. Where fantasy becomes reality. Now, here's Adam, Scott, Heath, and Chris. All right, very much looking forward to today's show as we have a special guest. And then later, Scott and I are going to talk about some players who were total studs last year who are not getting that fantasy baseball respect right now based on average draft position. It is Wednesday, January 15th. I'm Adam Azer. Hey, Scott White. Welcome. Scott is drinking something right now. Yeah, you, you call me there we mid-swallow. Go. Yeah, I was okay. taking a sip of water there, okay, so that's okay. good. All right, that's good. nice. And hey, who's on the show today? We got Matt Snyder, one of our baseball writers for CBS Sports. You know, every now and then, some something comes along in baseball that can, can put fantasy on hold for just a minute. So, Matt, we wanted to bring you on to talk about those, those darn cheaters. How you doing, Matt? <laughs> I'm good. I, I'm honored to be a special guest. Well, that was me, right? I'm the special guest, so oh no, I'm very no, honored we have to someone. Have we have someone totally me. different coming later. That's even more special. Oh, okay. You're just the regular <laughs> guest. <laughs> Is this Matt's first time That's on the show? It's, I feel like it's the first time. I've been on the show. I've been on with Azer before. Yeah, I, I think this is the first time on Fantasy Baseball today with you, at the very least. Okay. Uh, so yeah, I wanted to spend about ten minutes on this Astros Red Sox thing and. Uh, two managers and a GM getting fired and an owner who, you know, and Jim Crane, who, you know, didn't seem there were some too harsh consequences. But Matt, why don't you just give us your overall overall take on the situation? We'll start with that. Um, I, I was glad that he, they came down with the fine because until you start hitting the owners in the pocketbooks, they don't have much incentive to really change. $5 million is a relative drop in the bucket for Jim Crane, but that was the maximum amount Major League Baseball could find. So to go to the max, you could tell Crane was mad because he fired both of his guys who helped lead him to a World Series title. Uh, he went back and he said he told him to cut it out. Uh, it seems like there was a lot of shadiness that just needed to be unpacked, and, and it seems like we're starting to unpack that. Uh, the Red Sox firing Cora seems like it's a continuation of that. I expect Major League Baseball to come down hard on Alex Cora because he was involved in both. Yeah, and That's back-to-back stain titles, different teams. It looked like he kind of took some of the things he learned with the Astros to the Red Sox. So he stained two World Series in a row for different franchises. That's a big deal. And uh, I also think it's a big deal to start to get it cleaned up. So I commend – I've been hard on Rob Manfred on a lot of different things. So I have to be fair on this front and say I think he's trying to get out as much as he can in front of this. And so far, I think he's doing a good job. Scott, what's your overall take? Uh, well, I 
I, I'm interested on something that something Matt just said is starting to unpack it. Um, obviously, MLB came down and, and then Jim Crane came down even harder on Jeff Luno and AJ Hinch, ultimately firing them. And compl- between that and the one year suspension, uh, I, it's hard to imagine they're going to have high profile jobs in baseball, at least for the foreseeable future. Um, so what they got hit for was the 2017 uh, situation with the the banging on the trash cans to signal uh, when pitches were coming based on um, the video the signs being stolen right. through through video. Mm-hmm. And uh, the question we're getting a lot is, well, how do we value Astros yep. now? Do we need to lower the value of all their hitters? And the, because you said starting to unpack that, I mean, part of my thinking was, okay, this goes back to 2017. It goes back to Alex Cora, who's been gone for two years. Um, what kind of any changes in those players we would have already seen by now. But uh, I, I mean, what's your feeling on that, Matt? Uh, it's interesting. I've actually had a few people ask me that too. Like, shouldn't we downgrade the Astros at least like one round or something like that? And one of the things we need to keep in mind on that, it's, it's interesting. You said to starting to unpack, and that's something I've talked about on uh, a couple other radio shows is something like this happens. It always seems like there's going to be more down the line, whether it's different teams being involved. Like we saw initially it was the Astros, then the Red Sox got added to it. Now I know it's just Alex Cora with both teams, but you never know if we're going to see other teams down the line where this comes out. But uh, one thing that that to me is one of the biggest deals, if you talk about it from a fantasy perspective, is the teams can really only control the video aspect of this at home. They have the home feed. They can only use kind of advanced video technologies when they're at home because they can't take a bunch of equipment with them on the road and then bring it into the clubhouse and have it in the hall between. So you, what you'd have to look at is home road splits. Sure. And actually was looking at some of the split from last year from the Astros and like Bregman was way better on the road like right. exponentially better on the road. But then you look at somebody like Correa, he was awful. Oh, and I mean, 516 slugging on the road, but 242 average on the road versus 323 at home. That is but something I, that if they were still carrying over some of the techniques in 2019 might right. be worrisome. But the report from Manfred said they it carried over some in 2018, but they found that it was less effective as the year went on. And then mostly he found that they weren't really doing it in 2019. So a lot of that discussion might be obsolete by now. Yeah. And okay. And you were, and you were mostly just looking at the home away splits you gave there were basically restricted to 2019. I I mean, the way I've kind of seen it is okay. Maybe in 2017 that contributed to Marwin Gonzalez having a career year. That's that, that year he had then was kind of an outlier. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But you know, most of the high profile Astros hitters were, High draft picks, top prospects, and just have been studs basically from the day they set foot in the big leagues. Bregman, George Springer, uh, Carlos Correa. He's had some injuries, but you know when he's been all there, he's been he's been great. So I, I think there's a tendency, and this is just kind of a human nature thing. I think when when somebody gets busted for something that you don't get busted for. It's easy to easy to take this kind of sanctimonious attitude where you just want to totally nail them as hard as you can and you want them to suffer the right. maximum That's the only amount. reason they were good, right? That's yeah, the only reason they yeah. were good. Look, look how much of a stud Nelson Cruz is still. I feel like almost a lot of right. people have forgotten about the biogenesis ties with Nelson Cruz because he's still such a stud power hitter 
into his late thirties. Yeah. So it's probably not going to make that big of a difference, even if they were still doing stuff. The only thing I thought about was, uh, Coors Field came to mind to me. Let's say the the report's wrong and the Astros were still doing some stuff at home last year. And then we have to lump in the Red Sox too. Like Bogart splits were a big difference last year, for example. Um, Coors Field, for example, going on the road when you're a Rockies player, there's a penalty there because you get so used to hitting in Coors Field, then you automatically are pretty much way worse on the road. And a lot of people thought, oh, these guys are Coors creations. But you look at somebody like DJ LeMahieu last year, it kind of goes to show once you break free from it. So I almost wonder if, I guess this is a kind of a roundabout way to say, if some of these really talented guys were getting signs at home and now that's going to go away, maybe a penalty on the road goes away too. So uh, I think, I want to bring up this split real quick. Jose Altuve in 2017, during the height of the cheating, his OPS at home was 834 and his OPS on the road was 1081. So it didn't yeah. seem to help him. He he's better it's without a Bregman cheating. last year. Yeah. And I mean it's 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 along the same lines as the guys who've gotten busted for for PEDs. You know, every, oh, they're not going to be the same anymore. That was the reason they were good. And I over the years uh, you know, there there's some that you could attribute to just natural regression, age, whatever, but you take that out of the equation and I can't think of a single example where a guy got busted for PEDs, came back, and was noticeably worse uh, when he did come back. Uh, Melky Cabrera, Melky at the time. Melky was who? the guy I was going to go with. Who were you going to say, Matt? Colabello. There's Colabello. a few guys that were like, they were quad A, and then they did it, and well, they had a big year. But, but for the Colab- most part, Colabello when they're had like player. a 400 BABIP, too, is the thing. Like yeah. It, yeah. There were obvious reasons he was going to decline apart from that. Well, he took for- BABIP pills, Scott. All right, so, so I think... <laughs> I think we're pretty much, you know, and this has been asked a lot, but from a fantasy standpoint, you know, it doesn't seem like Scott's willing to downgrade anyone in the rankings for this. So I, I wanted to talk more generally from a baseball standpoint. And let me read an email here um, from Wayne Provost in Myrtle Beach. And his subject line was, hey, Alan, dot, dot, dot. And the reason I'm reading this email is because he called me Alan instead of Adam. And I've been hosting the show for <laughs> 10 years. So I just thought that was funny. He said, seeing as you're on your moral high horse and crucifying Boston and Houston for stealing signs, you must surely want to condemn the Yankees for using technology and stealing signs from 2010 to 2015 per The Athletic. Looking forward to your response on the podcast. And then Wayne sent a follow-up email of the day. Your scorch earth policy means you need to go after the players involved also and Carlos Beltran and whoever comes out next. I suppose you never cheated at anything. (laughs) <laughs> so that he is referencing that I said on this show many times, half joking, half serious, maybe 51% serious, that they should strip the Red Sox and the Astros of their World Series titles. They are cheaters, and they deserve to be stripped of their titles. So you want me to criticize the Yankees for cheating before Manfred? So Manfred gave this memo. It was 2017, right? Where he yes, said, stop, 2017. stop using technology. And I think the reason yes. he came down so hard on the Astros and the Red Sox is they did it after the memo. So cheating is cheating. The Yankees deserve to be outed as cheaters during this stretch, whenever it was. You know, you can read the athletic report. Absolutely. If they had won the World Series, I, I might say strip them, but they didn't. So strip the Red Sox and strip though. the— I would I might. Look, if they did it <laughs> if they did it after the memo, I certainly would have. But after the memo is when it got egregious to me. There's such a—it gets so tough. It's like, when is cheating worse than other forms of cheating? You know, it's, it's not an easy question to answer. 
But obviously, Rob Manfred felt that the uh, the Astros and the Red Sox crossed the line, Matt. Yeah, and I mean, he said he interviewed uh, upwards of 60, uh, off the top of my head, maybe 68 people that were involved. And uh, a lot of the players, I mean, they testified it, almost like from a criminal proceeding standpoint. A lot of people have been asking me, why haven't any players got hit? Well, it was in ch- exchange for immunity that they said this is what we were doing just so they wouldn't get in trouble. So it, it seems to me that all the, the Astros players kind of came clean. My guess is when we hear the Alex Cora investigation on the Red Sox in, it's going to be very similar. All the Red Sox players are going to say this is what we were doing. It was at the direction of Alex Cora. Cora, it seems like, has, has pretty much admitted it. If not fully, then he will eventually and he'll apologize. Um, but, yeah, yeah I, I feel like, like you said, it was the memo. 2017 right. spring training, stop using technology to do it. The Astros almost immediately thereafter just basically trampled on the memo and did it. And that's why it's such a big deal. Now, I will say on the vacating titles thing, to me, that's always just seemed dumb. Even when I was a little <laughs> kid and I'd hear about like a, a college team vacating titles, like, but but I knew they won. Right. Yeah. And they right. went through the experience and they went through the celebrating. Like, unless you have one of those men in black memory eraser thingies, you can't take away the Astros fans' memories of that. You can't take away the players celebrating and how they felt. You can't take away their parade. That all happened. Right. Yeah. So vacating it is to me something that just makes somebody who missed it in a position of authority, it makes them feel better. Because other than that, it doesn't really do anything. It would make me feel better, for sure. So A.J. Hinch being suspended and then fired, when the report, he reportedly broke the monitor twice, sort of in protest of this scheme. They had a monitor, you know, in their their club, in their dugout, or not in their dugout, but close by, to help in relaying the signs with the trash cans, whatever. And he apparently, Matt, he broke the monitors? So, like... Should I feel bad for AJ Hinch? What's your read on his role? Yes and no. Uh, on the yes end, he is he he's he has long been known as a man of character, a, a good baseball man, and uh, he he's one of the few guys who actually stood up for Stephanie Epstein in the Sports Illustrated incident with Brandon Taubman. He he actually did come out after the fake news uh, press release at the front office released. Hinch actually came out and said, "We need to do a better job of this," uh, but. He's also in the situation, and if you don't do more to prevent it than just breaking him on her, you, you know, you're Alex Cora's boss. You're the player's boss. You go to them and say, cut this out. If it's coming from above, which I suspect it was, I'm sure that Luno knew what was going on, but it, he kind of created layers of separation so it wasn't directly linked to him. But if he felt like he really wanted to do the moral thing, he he could have resigned. Um, I, I feel like he was probably caught in between a rock and hard place where he wanted to win the World Series and he knew he had the horses to do it, but he knew this was wrong. And so he was just kind of caught. But if you're really going to come out as a man of the highest moral fiber, then you quit if you can't get him to stop. All right, I'm going to end this uh, discussion here and let Matt go with one final question for both of you. And it's how big of a deal do you think this is, you know, just generally speaking from a baseball standpoint? And I think it's a pretty big deal. I think it's discouraging to know that cheating is is pretty rampant and that all teams are trying to do it. I mean, I guess you know that, but the lengths that they went to to do it, lengths that other teams went to bef- went through uh, went to, excuse me, before the memo. Um I think it's very discouraging. I think it's kind of sad and uh I hate it in terms of professional sports. So, I do think it's a big deal and I I think Rob, Rob Manfred did a good job. I I give him a round of applause for the punishments. Uh I don't know. I'm not, I'm just going to Stay out of what he did with with uh, the owner Jim Crane or whatever. Basically, not much. But I 
I think he did a good job, and I think it was a really big deal, and I think it needed harsh punishment. Scott, where do you stand on this whole thing? Well, uh, certainly the the punishments made it a big deal if it wasn't before. I mean, the, this is kind of unprecedented, um, the level that... I mean, Jeff Luno was had built and was still building a dynasty. I mean, the Astros were in a position for... Uh, I mean, they already had tons of success and were in a position for sustained success, and maybe his successor will get to continue it. But, I, I mean, they just dismantled it, and obviously it's it's disgraced now, uh, everything they've accomplished to this point. Uh, I kind of am of the mindset that everybody, every organization is cheating a little bit somewhere. <laughs> and so... Uh, I feel like the ones that have the most success are under the microscope more and, and tend to get singled out more. Um, hopefully, I mean, what really crossed the line with this was the use of technology. And, and hopefully the hammer came down hard enough that that'll really curtail it. But um, I, I think I, I mean, kind of what we talked about with with individual performances, what substantive effect did it have well maybe on a micro level it had pitch by pitch it, it did have a significant one but on a ma macro level i mean the astros whether or not they won that world series they were positioned to be a dynasty mm -hmm. all right matt your final word yeah i, I agree with most of that i mean i, I think it, it's it's probably not as huge of a deal as i see a lot on social media coming about like oh vacate the title they're yeah. Dirty cheater. That's probably too far. <laughs> but it, it, coming from a player's That's perspective, good. and I've talked to a lot of players when the, the Yankees talked about like if the Astros were whistling when they had the signs and most of them are like, you know, hide your signs better. Uh, I, I actually talked to a former catcher who said one time Jose Okendo got his signs and he, he was like, that was on me. I need to do a better job of covering him. Now, there's a whole different ballgame between somebody on the bases getting your signs and using video technology and relaying it, that's where I think the line got crossed, and it was going to continue to get crossed. And that's why I think going back to what Alan said, I'm sorry, Adam. Alan, yeah, no, Alan's fine. <laughs> Alan, going yeah. back to what Alan said, uh, <laughs> Manfred did a good job of nipping this in the bud because if he didn't hit this early, it was only going to get worse. It was only going to get more rampant and widespread. So I think it was a good job that he nipped this in the bud and he got it early. Now they're going to get the Red Sox too. Hopefully this puts a stop to it. I do think that eventually you're going to have to do something where uh, I proposed to a former pitcher and he said, I, actually, I would do that. I like that. Getting an earpiece that's like the size of, a, of a, a hearing aid. They make those so small now you can't even see them. Give a catcher like a wristband, have him punch buttons on there. Pitcher knows what pitch. He can still shake him off if he wants. We're probably going to need to get to something. Now, that's kind of sad that we might need to do that just to prevent the technology from stealing. But Hey, technology's there. We might as well use it for a positive instead of a negative. Yeah. I, I, hopefully the wheels are in motion with something like that. Gone are the days of catchers wearing nail polish. Sad, sad thing <laughs> in professional baseball. Matt Snyder, thank you very much for joining us. Good stuff. All right, guys. Have a good one. Ready to talk fantasy baseball, Scott? Oh, I'm always ready, Adam. Oh, good. Okay. I was born ready. How'd you feel about Probably the, not. How'd you feel about the, uh, the Oscar nominations? It's always a big thing um, for you, I think. I did not dig into them that hard. <laughs> okay, never mind. Yeah, sorry. All right, well, look, if I've been saying it on Twitter. I'm going to say it on the air now. Dolomite is my name was amazing, and Eddie Murphy was the best he's ever been. He's ever been, and he was <laughs> snubbed 
of a nomination. The, I've only seen one other movie that had one of the best actor nominees, and no disrespect to Adam Driver, but Eddie Murphy was so much better than him. This was a Travis Sham mockery. For those of you who remember mm. that fun commercial. What'd you think about the Adam Sandler snub? So I actually agreed with it. I saw Uncut Gems. I liked Uncut yeah. Gems. Yeah, you told me you liked it. I did I not think he was great. I thought there was a scene where he was crying and it was a little, it was kind of bad. Uh, mm. I just, I thought he was pretty good, but I didn't think he was like Oscar worthy. My personal okay. opinion, yeah. But okay. Uncut Gems was really good. Yeah, it was good. Okay, Scott, topic today. Players who were studs last year that were not that are not being treated as studs in, in ADP. And the players I want to talk about are Cattell Marte, and this is in order of average draft position. Cattell Marte, uh, going 44th overall, he was the number 16 hitter in fantasy. DJ LeMahieu going 66th overall, he was top six at three different positions. Jorge Soler going 75th overall, we talked about him I think on our last show. Top 10 outfielder. Marcus Simeon. Marcus Simeon was the number five. Listen. He was the number five hitter in points leagues last year, number 18 in Roto. Uh, he, I think he played 162 games, and he led off, and his plate discipline was good. So, but, I mean, he was an MVP finalist in the AL. One of, you know, <laughs> there's three finalists announced before the winner. So, uh, like, that was deserved completely. Yeah, and he's going 81st, Marcus Simeon. Uh, Nelson Cruz had his best season ever. He had a 1031 OPS. He's going 91st. Eduardo Escobar is going 99th. Hyunjin Ryu, 100. This 98, like 100th overall, seemed to be where these guys who really surprised us last year, and there are some questions where they tend to start going. Nelson Cruz, Eduardo Escobar, Hyunjin Ryu, Josh Donaldson, who just signed a deal. We'll talk about that. Trey Mancini, forgot about how good he was. Top 15 outfielder. Uh, and Yuli Gurriel, who had a 1087 OPS in his last 73 games. Yuli Gurriel going 113th overall. Um, I did want to run through the news, just mainly three items. Let's do that real quick. Okay. One of them is on Josh Donaldson. Four yep. years, $92 million with the Twins. What do you think? Well, as a Braves fan, I'm bummed because it was it was looking like all the other contenders were scooping up lower and third basemen, and I, I thought I – thought, I, I was just waiting for the Josh Donaldson back, back to the Braves announcement. For fantasy, I, I think the biggest – most impactful thing here is that uh, Austin Riley has a pretty easy path to at bats now if he proves ready for them. I mean, he could have played the outfield. He showed that last year too. But like the the only obstacle at third base now is Johan Camargo, and barring a big trade like for Nolan Arenado or Chris Bryant, which seems unlikely, uh, you know, I, I don't think that's going to change. I think more likely the Braves find a cleanup hitter via an outfielder. So. Austin Riley will be starting for the Braves at third base again at some point this season. A lot of power potential there. Obviously, the strikeouts caught up to him last year, but he's a year older, hopefully a year wiser, and uh, we'll see if, if maybe he can come through on all this potential this time around. Oh, my gosh. He was so fun to talk about, Austin Riley. His first 17 games got called up on May 15th. His first 17 games, he had an OPS at almost 1,100. He batted 328 with eight home runs, but only three walks to 25 strikeouts. So let's just get the numbers after that, uh, beginning on June 4th, his 18th disaster. game. Yeah, pretty it's bad, It's just a right? disaster. <laughs> I mean, his strikeout rate was like 35% for the year, which is, you know, 
He batted. Gallo, he had a, Joey oh, Gallo. Ter- he had a six. I said Joey Gallo. Joey, Joey Gallo. Gallo territory. He had a six forty four OPS, thirteen walks to eighty three strikeouts after yeah. that amazing start of uh, of seventeen games. So Austin Riley was fun, and also uh, a related note: they gave the Twins gave Miguel Sano an extension, three years, thirty million. He really, if in case you missed it, his last seventy one games, he had a nine fifty five OPS. I know he made an adjustment in the box, like with his stance, and it, it seemed to pay off. And Sano has been an up and down player, but he'll play first base now, right? So he'll have eligibility at both corners of the infield. Yeah, but within the first week of the season, he right. will. Yes, and I'm high on Miguel Sano. I think obviously he has to stay healthy, but I think if he does, there's a good chance he's 50 homer guy. I mean, he's he's right up there with Joey Gallo and Aaron Judge in terms of how hard he impacts the ball, which we've seen with those two cases and others is what can overcome a big strikeout rate. What'd you make of the Rays Cardinals trade? The Rays getting Jose Martinez and Randy Arozarena, as the Welsh would say, Hey, Arozarena. And uh, they also got the 38th pick from the Cardinals. They gave up a a pitching prospect, Matt Liberatore. I hope I'm saying that right. And Edgardo Rodriguez, a catcher and the 66th pick. What'd you make of this trade? Uh, we were told about, uh, I'd been saying it Liberator, but maybe it is Liberatory. I, I don't know. Um, we'd been told that he was part of a deal like two hours before we heard the rest of the deal. So all of Twitter was in pins and needles waiting, waiting to hear what the Cardinals gave up to get this consensus top 100 prospect. And when we found out what it was, it was a womp womp moment because it was just, a couple of platoon bats, you know? I mean, that's all Jose Martinez is at this point. He's restricted to DHing. They just signed um, Yoshi Tsutsugo out of Japan to be there. They, you figure he's going to play primarily DH. He can play some left field. He can play some first base. But he's probably the left-handed complement to Jose Martinez, who bats right-handed. And I think that's all this is going to be. Uh, as much as the Rays like to move parts around and as good of a history as they have uh, of uh, you know maximizing the impact of hitters, guys like Avisel Garcia and use, uh, um, <laughs> Diaz, what's his first name? Yandy. I'm blanking on his first name. What? Yandy. Yandy Diaz, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe there's something they see in Jose Martinez that they can tap into, but well, I just he, don't he's, think... He's coming off a I really... I don't think the at-bats are going to be there. He's coming off a really bad year. But yeah. before that, he was a really good average hitter. Yeah. And, like, I think he could be, in a best-case scenario, what Avisal Garcia was to the Rays last year. Mm-hmm. But that would require more playing time than I see available to him right now. Yeah, and he's such a bad defender. So at least this gets him to the American League, right? So if there are some injuries, maybe... Well, you know, you don't have to draft them. Put it that way, but... If he gets everyday playing time, this is a guy who could, in a roto league, be hugely valuable because he can hit 300 in uh, <clears throat> in Jose Martinez. Okay, uh, a trade of Nolan Arenado still considered a long shot, according to ESPN's Jeff Passan. The Diamondbacks signed relief pitcher Hector Rondon to a one-year deal. The Mets invited Tim Tebow to spring training. Great. The Rangers signed Todd Frazier to a one-year $5 million deal. The A's acquired infielder Tony Kemp from the Cubs for first baseman Alfonso Rivas. The Phillies cut Odubel Herrera and claimed Nick Martini. The Dodgers signed Alex Wood to a one-year deal. Mm. That's interesting. Maybe he can bounce I, back. 
Yeah, I think that's the second most notable transaction here after Donaldson, just because the Dodgers are doing that Dodgers thing again where they get like 10 arms for five spots and we're just going to be pulling out our hair trying to decide whether we could, should go after the Ross striplings and even like Dustin May, Tony Gonsolin. Add Alex Wood to that mix because I don't think he's going to be guaranteed a rotation spot, but I suspect he'll be making some starts for them this year. And Atlanta Stadium has a new name. No longer SunTrust Park. It is now Truist Park. T-R-U-I-S-T. Truist Park. We could do something with that. We used to say, we used to joke, you could trust that the ball was going to touch the sun because the ball was just flying out of SunTrust Park when it opened. But yeah. now, I think the truest outcome is just going to be that it's like a neutral park. You see, I don't know yeah. where I'm going with that. Yeah. yeah, it's 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 uh, landed on its truest right. form. There you go. And <laughs> yeah, it's it's just kind of a middle-of-the-road ballpark. All right, Scott, let's talk about players who were studs last season but are not being treated like studs this season. Before okay, the- I want to I give a overall take on this subject because it's one that's become near and dear to me this was not in any way by design this was not a strategy i sat down and consciously thought about but it's i've I've kind of backed into it and i'm pretty happy with the way it's gone for me it seems like the industry as a whole does not like these guys kind of the mid-career breakout guys um they tend to get from my perspective, buried in the rankings. And look, I think it's totally appropriate for a guy with kind of a middling track record coming off a career season. Okay, you don't rank him like the career numbers. I never do. But the discount of being applied by the industry as a whole is, is, as a whole is so extreme. One example you didn't even include here, Mark Canna. I was talking about him on... Uh, uh, on Twitter last night, and uh, he's barely a top 300 player, even though he had a near 400 OBP, uh, an, o- an OPS over 926 home runs, and I think 410 at bats. And that was as a everyday player. Basically, the final three months of the season was good against both righties and lefties. Uh, Mark Canna's nearly a top 150 player for me and the industry as a whole barely has him in the top 300 so that that's an example of that right there i mean if you if you just project those numbers from canada last year out you're talking about michael conforto type production if not better and so i'm i'm not ranking him that high i'm not ranking him you know at michael conforto's level but he's just being completely disregarded by the masses so i think I have theories for why this is the case. I know a lot of projection systems start with three-year averages, which would obviously, uh, for guys with middling track records, would really pull down that career year. And maybe that's where it comes from. Rankings are then built off those projections. I, I don't know. That's just a guess. But at a time when uh, player analysis has become so sophisticated data, so widely available, that it's hard to find much differentiation and how we evaluate players, I've found this to be a market inefficiency, a way to really get an edge on your competition is just not ignoring these guys. Sure. Yeah, all right. So I only have one pitcher. I've missed a lot of guys, I'm sure. You know, you mentioned Mark Canna. Somebody wrote us an email about Lance Lynn and Mike Miner, so they could have fit the bill too. But I went with mostly hitters here, and Hyunjin Ryu is the only pitcher I have. I guess if I were looking at this list as a whole... I think 
Marte is going to be the toughest one because he's going the earliest by far on this list. Marte is going 44th overall. He was the number 16 hitter in fantasy. I think we should start with him. Uh, I I feel most confident that I know. Do I know who this player is? There are two guys where I feel like I know who they are, and that's Nelson Cruz and Josh Donaldson. And Nelson Cruz, if he's healthy, I think he's going to be a top 20 hitter. Until I see otherwise, I'm not doubting Nelson Cruz. He was better than ever last year but he's starting to get hurt. So I think 91st overall is like a ridiculous value for Nelson Cruz. And I think Josh Donaldson is going to hit a lot of home runs and driving a lot of runs. Yeah. And I think you should probably expect like a 265-ish, something like that kind of batting average. Well, if if healthy. And those are the two most proven on this list, Donaldson and Cruz. They've been studs before. They were studs last year, Mm -hmm. but they're also, uh, Donaldson's 34, Cruz is 39. And Donaldson has an extensive injury history. So the, there are separate reasons they're being downgraded than just disbelief in the performance. It's it's risk of the age. And, uh, and Donaldson's case, third base is so loaded that even though, let's see where he finished last year. He was Seven, among third basemen. He was seventh in points leagues. Yeah, and ninth in right? Roto. And ninth in Roto. Mm-hmm. It's easier to make these comparisons in points leagues, which is why I tend to go there with comparison. But you look at the per-game production for Donaldson, even though he was technically seventh, I mean, there are so many right there with him in terms of points per game that it's it wouldn't have taken much to shake up those rankings in a significant way. And so when you start assessing him alongside similarly able players... He he becomes the risks really stand out for him. Compare him to like Matt Chapman or Manny Machado, who we know have, uh, you know, Machado wasn't quite on their level this past year, but obviously we've seen greatness from him in the past. Donaldson, the risks really stand out for him, so he just keeps getting pushed down at a weak position, at a deep position. Yes, yeah. at a deep position. Sorry. I mean, that's an interesting take. I, I think. He had an interesting season in Donaldson because he we kept talking about him as maybe a buy low because he was hitting the ball so hard and had nothing to show for it. His first 65 games, only a 769 OPS, only nine home runs. He batted 236, and the plate discipline wasn't great. His last 90 games, he had a 994 OPS, and he had 63 walks to 79 strikeouts, and he batted 275. Um, and you look at what he did in, in, I think, only 16 games with Cleveland— but he had 10 walks to 10 strikeouts with Cleveland at the end of 2018. So there's been like enough good plate discipline in his last two years to make me feel like he might not be a batting average drain because he, he hit 259. Maybe he can hit 270, but it, look, obviously not yeah. gonna, he's not going to help you. But he could help you, he could help you in OBP because he does walk a lot. But all right, so fine. We know who they are. If they stay healthy, they're going to be run producers, Nelson Cruz and Josh Donaldson, and now they're in the same lineup. But let's if start... they stay healthy and they just don't have a skills decline, which especially in Cruz's case, it could happen any year. At 39, he's already beating the odds a few times over. Yeah, I suppose. I guess I'm not really that concerned about it because like hitting is so deep. I don't know, and I and I also I, feel I, like if, I also feel he like he drops to a point where there's no need to be concerned about it. You know? Yeah. If, I feel like if they change the ball and home runs go down, I actually those guys are going to keep hitting them. You know, Donaldson and uh, Cruz. Yeah, they they'll hit them. Okay, anyway, yeah, Cattell Marte. 
So I think you're going to be one of the high guys, right, on Cattell Marte within the oh, industry? Definitely. Yeah. When, when would you take definitely. him? It's like I said, he's going 44th overall. So I was able to push him into the third round in points leagues just by moving pitchers up higher, and I could totally justify that. But in Roto League, he's still a late second rounder for me. And uh, again, I'm going to use points leagues just because it makes for an easier comparison. We have to. Can I? Can we can't I lose sight though? of the fact of just how. Can I interject? How Sorry. A, uh, sure, go ahead. I just want to point out, this is a player in Cattell Marte that is that profiles as someone who would be better in points leagues. His plate discipline's good. He gives you doubles. He gives you triples. He's not a huge steals guy necessarily. So I think any bats lead off. It's toward the top of the order, so he's going to get a lot of plate appearances. So yeah, totally fine to use points leagues. This player in particular, Cattell Marte, is, I think you know I'm much more confident drafting him in a points league. And when we talk about DJ LeMahieu, I feel the same way about him. Uh, than I am in a roto league at this point. But go ahead with Marte. So yeah, it's it's just to remind everybody how distant of a first he was at second base per game production here, um, which probably gives a better snapshot than overall production. 3.88 points per game for him. Second among second basemen was another guy on this list, DJ LeMahieu, 3.68. So whatever concerns you'd have about Marte, uh, LeMahieu would share them. And there's a point two per game difference, which is a big difference. There's also a 22 uh, spot difference in Roto in terms of ADP yeah. between those two. But they're and the first two on the Altuve list. Altuve was third at 3.61, and then fourth was Max Muncy at 3.41. So another big drop there. So, um, and you know, Altuve of the names I just rattled off is the most proven. I have him and Marte ranked right next to each other. But I do want Marte more because I think if we're operating under the assumption that Altuve isn't going to be a big base dealer anymore, I certainly am, then Marte's upside, I think, is is more evident. What? And as, Dude, what? As far, I got to get super high pitched there. Like, Jose Altuve is one of the best hitters in baseball. Cattell Marte had not had an OPS. I don't even think he was 770 before last year. What he did last year was completely, completely shocking. He had, Well, you're he was, talking about downside. I was talking about upside. But he's only had one season of upside. And if you look at okay. Jose Altuve, what he did in the second half, he's probably the best hitter in baseball. If not, he was on the very, very short list. Well, uh, look at what Cattell Marte did in the second half, because that was, that was another thing that won me over to him. He has this incredible first half, unprecedented, and you're like, okay, he's going to cool off. These numbers are going to normalize. He only got better in the second half. He had a better second half than first. He had 358 with a 1081 OPS in the second half. Okay, but if, and, if Altuve uh, was I, better I mean, than big, that, will you will you change your mind? Because I think Altuve was better than that. Oh, I, uh, I don't know like, if he was he better than that. that. He, he Altuve that. was 325 with 21 homers. He had a I can't do the math right now. He had like he had an OPS over a thousand as well. It was pretty sick. But so much of Altuve's production in the past has been stolen bases. Like, the 31 home runs he hit last year were by far a career high as well. So it's like, like are we... I, I don't know that we could just assume... Like, if you, look, if you look at the numbers contributing to that in terms of uh, ex-WOBA and ex-batting average even, they paint a better picture for Marte than they do for Altuve, even though Altuve has the the track record. Uh, and Marte, I, I mean, he like doubles his launch angle. It's it's 
he he joined the fly ball revolution. That was a big key to the breakthrough too. So it's not just looking at the numbers and making judgments from that. It looks like there was a clear uh, skill change there as well. I don't know because that's the thing. Like he still tell Marte right. I, the question I think that needs to be answered that you are currently answering is what happened. This guy was mm. he he went from fourteen home runs. Well, he went from one to five to fourteen to thirty-two home runs in his last four seasons. He still hits more ground balls than fly balls. His thirty-six percent hard contact rate. No, that was two thousand eighteen. Forty-two percent hard contact rate was fifty-eighth in baseball. I just don't get it. I don't understand how Cattell Marte was this good because it's not like his home run to fly ball rate was super high. It was like fifteen percent or something. Oh, it was nineteen percent. But even that's not crazy high. But maybe for well, a guy a good who, thing. yeah, that, that is a good not thing. Crazy, yeah. but maybe it's high for someone with only a forty-two percent hard contact rate, according to Fangraphs. I don't know. But this, you got to admit, Scott, this season came out of nowhere and was just a bonkers outlier season. Um, yes and no. I will say, like, I didn't. I don't think even the the Cattell Marte truthers, and and you know, he was he was a, he was a sleeper for some. Uh, I'll tell you why in just a minute, but I don't even think they were expecting numbers like this. And look, he overachieved. I think that's pretty clear. His 329 batting average, that's compared to a 299 XBA. His 981, or I'm sorry, his 405 Woba, that's compared to a 370 X Woba. The thing is, those X numbers are still high. I mean, that 299 XBA was top. 15 in baseball so uh, like he it's probable he's going to regress some but the production certainly the breakthrough is backed up by the skills and and this is the number i wanted to cite last year for Cattell Marte. um i was a little too dis i noticed it in retrospect i was obviously too dismissive of it but not everybody was over the final four months of 2018, Cattell Marte hit 285 with an 877 OPS. That's that was good. the final two thirds of 2018. Hmm, interesting. He so was, you t- yeah. you split the difference between that and last year. I think that's about what you're talking about. Uh, a reasonable expectation for Cattell Marte being okay. Uh, all right, so then let's talk about DJ LeMahieu, who is going 66th overall. Now that's in Roto. I, I think that even if LeMayhew, let's say the batting average comes down uh, a little bit, we just get the numbers up. He hit, DJ LeMayhew hit 327. Uh, the fact that he leads off for the best lineup in baseball, what was the best lineup last year, will certainly be, I would think, at least top three this year. The fact that his plate discipline is always so good. To me, DJ LeMayhew in a points league, I think. I think you could justify like a top 40 pick for him. I really do. Uh, you know, he might have to sort of meet his upside, but I think there's some safety there. But what surprised people about DJ LeMahieu Scott was that he was really, really bad on the road in 2018. His OPS mm-hmm. on the road was 699, but his batting average on the road was 229. And with Colorado, he had always been someone who on the road, away from cores, didn't hit for any power. But he still hit for a good average, at least in recent seasons. And then 2018 happened. He hits 229 away from Coors Field, and certainly did not expect him to hit 327 with the Yankees with a 349 Babbitt. 
Uh, so I love that he leads off. I love that he doesn't strike out. And I think that the home runs, I mean, he hit 26 of them, but I believe 19 of them, yeah, 19 of them came at home. And he does hit the ball to all fields, so he can go oppo and, you know, take advantage. Like, I'm I'm somewhat optimistic about him meeting this ADP of 66 overall. How about you with LeMahieu? Yeah, I'm optimistic about that too. It's another example of a guy I'm happy to buy into. And this is cl- more like the mid-career breakout we were talking about than even Cattell Marte. I mean, Cattell Marte is still pretty early in his career. I just don't think coming up through the Mariners and Diamondback systems, anybody was really thinking of him as a power hitter. LeMahieu, like the, the the change for him, other than the park, was that he started hitting home runs in a way he never had before. Everything else in terms of the kind of contact he makes, the all-fields approach, uh, the kind of Babbitt he profiles for, like that, that didn't really change. So it's just a question of, do you expect him to keep up the home run production? Uh I mean, the StatCast numbers say it was legit, more legit than Cattell Marte. He, his, he actually underperformed his ex-WOBA, LeMahieu did last year. He just hit the ball a lot harder than ever before. And I don't know, I, you know, you, you find a cause for something and then you have to find a cause for the cause. I can't take it any further than that. But you mentioned how good of he, how good he was at home. I mentioned his opposite field approach. I mean... It may just be that uh, Yankee Stadium is a better home run park than Coors Field. It's not a better hitter's park overall, but it's a better home run park. Um, Coors Field is the main thing it does is improve for hitters is improves the BABIP ceiling and floor. But but yeah, I, I think it's I think there's enough reason to buy into it for LeMahieu that considering he performed like a first or at least a second rounder last right, year. Right, right, Getting him in the sixth round, yeah, I'll do that all day long. Yeah, he's going to regress. I mean, especially, he hit 389 with runners in scoring position. So for a leadoff hitter, even on the Yankees, to drive in 102 runs, that was surprising. He did it in 145 games. So, like, there's no way he's going to have that type of RBI rate, I suppose. But I think he'll get you a good batting average. He'll probably hit 300, um, and he'll score 100 runs. And, yeah, he's you know he's solid. Um, and seems to me fairly safe because I guess because he just doesn't strike out. He has a track record of putting the bat on the ball. All right, let's talk about some more players here. Uh, we didn't mention. Let's look at this group here: Jorge Soler, Marcus Simeon, Eduardo Escobar. That's the order in, in which they're going. Soler seventy fifth, Simeon eighty first, and Escobar ninety ninth. Uh, most. How would you uh, How would you rank them? in terms of just overall on your draft board, Soler, Simeon, and Eduardo Escobar? I think I'd actually put Simeon ahead of Soler, but it's pretty close. Escobar would be a distant third for me. In fact, I think I actually, I think he might be the one player on this list that I have lower than his ADP. Because uh, I just, the the same numbers that are backing up these other players' performances don't really back up his, at least not to that same extent. Mainly, he should be worse on balls in play than he is. So if he's going to sell out as hard for power as he did last year, the overall production, you know, is is he might be more like a 245 hitter if he does that. 
and than he uh, hit, 269 hitter. Yeah, Eduardo Escobar hit 269 with 35 home runs and 118 RBIs. He does hit a lot of fly balls, which is nice. And he's actually been a top 10 second baseman based on the current player pool who's eligible at each position. Eduardo Escobar has been top 10 at second base and top 8 at third base two straight seasons. And he's had an OPS around 830 both years. And one year, I think he hit a ton of doubles and triples. Or no, yeah, no. 2018, he hit 48 doubles. Uh, and 2019, he turned some of those into home runs with 35 homers. It was the, mm-hmm. the year of the home run. I, there's just something about him that just feels very generic. Uh, I don't know. Like, he doesn't really well, do it I, for me. If you compare his numbers to Mike Moustakis's, they're like just the, just the raw numbers. They're they're pretty close. I mean, they're pretty close to being the same player last year. The thing is, Mike Moustakis has done it a few times over, and Escobar has basically just done it the one year. He had a pretty good year in 2018, too, but not like what he did last year. And I, last I saw, Escobar was going ahead of Moustakis, even though they both have the dual eligibility at second and third base. I, I just don't understand that at all. So how about Simeon? Because I, I just have trouble buying in. I, I love the strides he made with his play, <coughs> play discipline. Yep. And that's huge. huge. But gosh, he's been such a bad player. And I'm, I need <laughs> some water here. So go ahead. How <laughs> oh, bad is this oversimplification that was maybe brought about by your throat issue yeah, there? Yeah, I think it was. I was trying to get out of there. He's been he's been a, pre, a fairly useless fantasy player, I'd say, in previous Yeah, seasons. pretty fringy. Pretty fringy for fantasy purposes, though the fact, you know, he might give you 15 homers and 15 steals had its place in middle infield. Roto leagues that had a midfield, middle infield spot, but obviously much, much better last year. You mentioned the plate discipline, which was significantly improved, both in terms of the walks and especially the strikeouts, and obviously that's going to improve batting average potential in and of itself. Simeon's another one of those guys who, the way he started out last season, you thought, okay, he's going to come back down to earth, and then he just got better in the second half, kind of like I was saying for Cattell Marte. And in Simeon's case, it's even more obvious how that happened. Uh, his He just stopped hitting ground balls, which in today's landscape is, you know, ground balls are, are the worst thing you could possibly hit because fly balls are so likely to end up at home runs. And obviously, defensive shifts are taking away a lot of ground ball hits. His line drive and fly ball rates both went up significantly in the second half, which improves both batting average potential and power potential. And we saw it applied to the, the base stats. So again, I'm not counting on MVP caliber production again, but I would be perfectly happy with him as my starting shortstop in the range he's going, which is what about the seventh round in a 12 team league? Let me ask you something about what you just said. I understand that line drive rate helps Babip, but batting some, it, yeah, yeah, it's it, but yeah, uh, batting yeah, average. and batting average, yeah. And the funny thing is, like his Babip has been remarkably consistent, but he just stopped striking out, so mm-hmm. it made sense. You got the same Babip, you're putting more balls in play, your batting average is going to go up. But wouldn't an increase in fly ball rate be worse than ground balls in terms of your batting average? Yeah. It would. It lowers Babbitt potential, uh, hitting more fly balls. That's why somebody like Moustakis is condemned to a low batting average. He doesn't strike out much, but he doesn't hit for much average either. But the two in unison, really it's more about lowering the ground balls than, in this case, raising the fly. The, the fact that it was distributed between line drives, which helped Babbitt, 
fly balls which hurt Babbitt, but help home run potential. I think that's how you get the best of both worlds is eliminating the ground balls from your profile. That's kind of, you know, that's that's kind of the part part of the launch yeah. angle revolution too. This is crazy. Just eighty first overall, and you just have to ask yourself at that point: Are the guys on the board that you could be taking instead of Simeon so good that you just can't pass up what Simeon did? You know, last year. Well, I'll, I'll tell you I, what t- I struggle it's with. It's tough. I'll, I'll tell you what I struggle with, and this is this is kind of just me sticking my sticking my neck out for Marcus Simeon. Although actually looking at composite ADP between a few different sources, I'm not alone in this. Uh, it's Simeon versus like Bo Bichette and uh, even a second baseman who's kind of in the same boat as Bo Bichette, Keston Hira. Uh, like, do I really want Simeon over those guys who showed so much upside in their rookie season? And it's it really just comes down to what you trust the most. And if you trust the data the most then the data backs up Simeon, what Simeon was doing better than it backs up those other two. I just, I've, I've seen enough fantasy baseball where the data could say that what a player did this year was completely legit. But as mm-hmm. we say, the data is not predictive. The data could, his hitting profile could change next year. So the data is more predictive than the actual numbers though. You're right. It could. It could. It's you are taking a risk somewhat, which is why I've said for all of these players, yes, you gotta you gotta downgrade them some. But generally speaking, you know, the data is a better indicator of skill change than just, you know, batting average, home runs, all of that. Yeah. And skill changes more often than not hold. They don't always, but they more often than not hold. Okay, and I think, I, I guess I would like Simeon and Marte better if they hit the ball a little harder, more consistently, because they, they increase their hard contact rate, but everybody's doing that these days. But they had very similar hard contact rates, I believe, <laughs> and according to, on Fangraphs anyway, and on our last show we talked about how Fangraphs and StatCast are a little bit different, but yeah. it's about 60th overall among hitters. So, you know, that's why a guy like Josh Donaldson is exciting to me because he clobbered the ball. And mm-hmm. Simeon really didn't. Uh, but he still hit 33 home runs with a 285 batting average. Uh, what an amazing year. He's another guy who batted. Yeah. He had a 702 slugging percentage with runners in scoring position. So 92 RBIs as a leadoff hitter, that's not necessarily easy to do. And I don't know that he'll do that again. Um, but again, he was he was the number eighteen hitter in Roto, number five in points leagues. When you lead off for a good lineup and you decrease your strikeouts, that is a great recipe for points league success. Uh, let's see, we got a few minutes left, Scott. Let me see who else we should talk about. How about Trey Mancini? Or the the final names were because uh, we already talked about Cruz and Donaldson, Hyunjin yep. Ryu, Trey Mancini, and Yuri Gurley, Yuli Gurriel. All going between 100th and 113th overall. Ryu, Mancini, Gurriel. Ryu's now, Ryu's now in the Blue Jays. And Mancini was a top 15 outfielder. And Gurriel was a 1087 OPS in his last 73 games, which was crazy. So mm-hmm. anyway, who do you like in that range? <laughs> Mancini probably the most because he doesn't have age working against him. I feel like... Look, Ryu's missed a lot of time with injuries over the years, so you you don't want a heavy investment in him just because of that. 
I think skill-wise, we pretty much know who he is. An extreme ground ball generator with terrific control. Not a huge bat misser, but those two things should be enough to give him a low threes ERA, which is basically what he regressed to in the second half. I think second half Ryu is what we can expect for as long as he's able to take the mound. But that is, you know, it's dangerous. He had a 318 ERA in the second half, by the way, with a 115 whip. But it's dangerous to assume he's going to be able to take the mound regularly. And now he's with the Blue Jays instead of the Dodgers, which also presents an issue in terms of uh, how how likely he is to win games. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm fine with him there, but I don't really want to go higher than that. Trey Mancini. All right, let's do Yulia Gurriel first, because yeah. you mentioned his second half numbers, right? Yes, I did. The second second half you pointed it, it out. W- yeah. Well, it wasn't exactly All Star break, but if you divide his season, Guriel's season, into halves, his first seventy one games he had a six eighty one yeah. OPS. His last seventy three games almost the same, ten eighty seven OPS, batted three thirty eight with twenty six homers. And I remember we were doing the video show at the time on CBS Sports HQ, and we had Jim Bowden on, and he was like, "They did the Astros worked their computer magic or whatever he said." On Guriel. So I think he was pretty convinced that it was legit. Well, you remember the reason I was curious how exactly how you broke it down, because you remember late summer, he kind of caught fire. And, you know, maybe if you left for football as you did, that's that's your lasting impression of Yuli Guriel. But he came to a crash landing in September. September was his worst month, worst month of the season. So it was July and August, really, that spike. And uh, with power production unlike we've seen from him in the majors before. In July especially, he had an 18-game stretch where he homered 12 times. 12 of his 31 home runs came during that 18-game stretch in July. So, uh, look, his fly ball rate was better, and... He's always been a guy who makes a lot of contact, so maybe that's enough in this environment for him to take a big step forward. I have an easier time making an investment in him in points leagues because you know you're going to get such an advantage with the low strikeout rate not costing him points that you know you could he'll still be pretty valuable even if he regresses to like twenty three homers from thirty one or something like that. But I would be surprised if he was that good again. I'm not sure if September was his worst month worst month because October was pretty bad too. Six sixty one OPS in the playoffs. Uh-huh. That stuff never yeah. really matters to where, me. But. Where were the where was the where were the trash cans? <laughs> All right, yeah. So Guriel, uh it doesn't sound like Scott's too interested in him as a top one hundred and twenty pick. That's still pretty early. I mean, we're still talking to twelve team right. league, the tenth round. I mean, we're definitely investing in him heavier than we ever have before. Mm-hmm. But I I'm I don't wanna push the issue too hard, I guess. And then Mancini, look, he's been in the league three years. One thing I'm sure you like this about Mancini, too. He was consistent. He batted 291 with 17 homers before the All-Star break. He batted 291 with mm-hmm. 18 homers after the All-Star break and 14 fewer games. He didn't really stop, uh, and he had a great year. 291 batting average, 35 homers, uh, 200 and was it 203 combined runs and RBIs. And, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, so this is... His rookie year was pretty good. His second year was miserable. His third year was great. What kind of hitter, what kind of a player do you think Trey Mancini is, Scott? And I apologize. we got about two minutes left. I have something scheduled uh, in a few minutes. I apologize. Go ahead. No problem. Uh, I think he's basically 
I, I'm willing to buy into him. Maybe he won't be quite as good as last year, but the XBA supports the BA and the XWOBA supports the WOBA. And like the problem for him heading into last year was he just didn't elevate the ball well enough. And it still wasn't a great fly ball last fly ball rate for Mancini last year, but kind of like I was saying for Simeon, if you focus more on the drop and ground ball rate, you that's really where you see the difference. He hit a lot of he hit the line drive and home and fly ball rates both improved enough together that I think you saw a significant difference in the production one that's backed up by data. This is another guy though. I mean, if I'm worried about Cattell Marte's hard contact rate at 42%, Trey Mancini's 37.1%. That's terrible. So, <laughs> you know, he's going at the same spot as Reese Hoskins. And are they both eligible at first in outfield? I think they're good comps. I mean, that's another one of those fan graphs versus getting back to the hard hit rate. Okay. Trey Mancini's hard hit rate on StatCast is pretty good. And what that measures is actual... I, I think I got this right. Forgive me if I don't. Forgive me, all you enlightened people out there, if I'm saying this wrong. But StatCast measures actual video evidence of the contact when... Uh, fan graphs is more of an indirect measurement based on um, based on a few factors I don't remember. I, I'm just basically say, zones where it's hit. I'm gonna be honestly. really annoyed if I have to start using another. Like I, it took me <laughs> five years to get onto fan graphs. Okay, I was way behind. If I have to st- stop fan graphs because something better came along, what's next after Statcast, people? This is why I don't trust. These freaking numbers. There's going to be something else in two years, Scott, that made us feel like we were so wrong two years ago. Ridiculous. It's always getting better, though, Adam. I guess. I hear you. I hear you, and I've had that same rant before, too, but (laughs) it's always getting better. All right, so to finish the show, would you rather have Reese Hoskins or Trey Mancini? I would rather have Hoskins, I think, easily in points leagues. It becomes tough in categories, though. All right. That's Scott White. Thanks to Matt Snyder. Thank you all for listening. We're going to have another show. It's going to be on Friday. I meant to read some emails today, but we'll do them on uh, Friday. We'll have a mini mailbag at the very least. Uh, Until then, see you later. I'm Alan. If you've ever been in the market for a new home, you know home shopping can be a lot. There's so much you don't know and so much you need to know. What are the neighborhoods like? What are the schools like? Who is the agent who knows the listing or neighborhood best? And why can't all this information just be in one place? Well, now it is on homes.com. As somebody who's been through this, I can tell you these features are so, so incredibly valuable. They've got comprehensive neighborhood guides and detailed reports about local schools, and their agent directory helps you see the agent's current listings and sales history. The area you live in is just as important as the house itself. You can get to know a neighborhood without ever setting foot in it. Say you're a really active person. You could find out about the nearest parks. Do they have a baseball field? Maybe you want to join a softball league like Chris and I play in. Also, Homes.com collaboration tools makes it easier than ever to share all this information with your family. It's a whole cul-de-sac of home shopping information all at your fingertips. Homes.com. We've done your homework.